Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallage. On a 1987 voyage to the Antarctic, paleoceanographer James Kennett and his crew dropped anchor in the Weddell Sea, drilled into the seabed, and extracted a vertical cylinder of sediment. In an inch-thick layer of plankton fossils and other organic remains buried more than 500 feet deep, they found a disturbing clue about the planet's past that could spell disaster for the future. Lower in the sediment core, Kennett's crew found fossils from 60 plankton species, But in that thin cross-section from about 56 million years ago, the number of species dropped to 17. And the plankton's oxygen and carbon isotope compositions had dramatically changed. Kennett and his student, Lowell Stott, deduced that carbon dioxide had flooded the air, causing the ocean to rapidly acidify and heat up. It's a process similar to what we're seeing today. Around the same time those 17 kinds of plankton settled into the Antarctic seabed, a taper-like creature died in what's now Wyoming. It deposited a tooth in a bright red layer of sedimentary rock in the Bighorn Basin's Badlands. In 1992, the person who found that tooth fossil, Phil Gingrich, and collaborators Jim Zakos and Paul Koch, reported the same isotope anomalies in the tooth's enamel that Kennett and Stott had presented in their ocean findings a year earlier. The prehistoric mammal had also been breathing carbon dioxide-flooded air. More data points surfaced in China, then Europe, then all over. A picture emerged of a brief cataclysmic hot spell 56 million years ago, now known as the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. That's P-E-T-M for short. Heat-trapping carbon leaked into the sky from an unknown source. The planet, which was already several degrees Celsius hotter than it is today, gained an additional six degrees, The ocean turned jacuzzi hot near the equator. On land, primitive monkeys, horses, and other early mammals migrated northward, following vegetation to higher latitudes. The mammals also miniaturized over generations as leaves became less nutritious in the carbon-heavy air. Violent storms ravaged the planet with flash floods and long droughts. Kennett says it wasn't the Earth we know now. He says all hell broke loose very quickly. The PETM doesn't only provide a past example of carbon dioxide-driven climate change. Scientists say it also points to an unknown factor that has an outsized influence on Earth's climate. When the planet got hot, it got really hot. Ancient warming episodes like the PETM were always far more extreme than theoretical models of the climate suggest they should have been. Even after accounting for differences in geography, ocean currents, and vegetation during these past episodes, paleoclimatologists find that something big appears to be missing from their models, an X-factor whose wild swings leave no trace in the fossil record. Evidence is mounting in favor of the answer that experts have long suspected, but have only recently been capable of exploring in detail. Matt Huber is a paleoclimate modeler at Purdue University. So somehow it has to be something that doesn't involve ice, exists under a warmer world, and isn't in models. So many people immediately go to clouds. 
So what I actually did was work on all the other things. So maybe it's not clouds. Maybe it's ocean heat transport. Maybe it's vegetation, right? Mm -hmm. So after kind of 15 years of doing that, me and other people have kind of ruled those other things out, which leaves clouds, but clouds are hard. Clouds currently cover about two-thirds of the planet at any given moment. But computer simulations of clouds have begun to suggest that as the Earth warms, clouds will become scarcer. That means fewer white surfaces reflecting sunlight back to space. And in turn, the Earth gets even warmer, leading to more cloud loss. This feedback loop causes warming to spiral out of control. Huber says he initially shied away from clouds in modeling. It's like the clouds are so powerful and so obviously important that it's almost like people, including me, have been a little frightened to do anything with them. Because once you start messing with clouds, you can make a lot of things happen. For decades, rough calculations have suggested that cloud loss could significantly impact climate. The concern remained speculative until the last few years when observations and simulations of clouds improved to the point that researchers could amass convincing evidence. Recent findings in the journal Nature Geoscience make the case that the effects of cloud loss are dramatic enough to explain ancient warming episodes like the PETM and to pretend future disaster. Climate physicists at Caltech performed a state-of-the-art simulation of stratocumulus clouds, those are the low-lying, blankety kind of clouds that have by far the largest cooling effect on the planet. The simulation revealed a level of warming at which stratocumulus clouds break up altogether. Carrie Emanuel is a climate scientist at MIT and a leading authority on atmospheric physics. And you reach a tipping point where there's enough back radiation to dissipate the stratocumulus. Once you've done that, the sunlight that would have been reflected is now being absorbed by the ocean beneath. So the ocean heats up, which makes the reformation of the stratocumulus even less likely. So it kind of goes over a cliff. The disappearance happens when the concentration of CO2 in the simulated atmosphere reaches 1,200 parts per million. That's a level that fossil fuel burning could push us past in about a century under business-as-usual emission scenarios. In the simulation, when the tipping point is breached, Earth's temperature soars 8 degrees Celsius in addition to the 4 degrees of warming or more caused by the CO2 directly. Emmanuel calls the new findings very plausible, but he says scientists have to now make an effort to independently replicate the work. To imagine 12 degrees of warming, think of crocodiles swimming in the Arctic and of the scorched, mostly lifeless equatorial regions during the PETM. Caltech's Tapio Schneider says if carbon emissions aren't curved quickly enough and the tipping point is breached... Areas like Southern California would be so hot and it would be difficult. That would be truly devastating climate change. Schneider performed the new simulation with Colleen Call and Kyle Pressel. Paleoclimate modeler Matt Huber says the stratocumulus tipping point helps to explain the volatility that's evident in the paleoclimate record. He thinks it might be one of many unknown instabilities in Earth's climate. Huber says Snyder and his co-authors have cracked open a Pandora's box of potential climate surprises. So if it actually has to do with a basic physical feedback that arises under warmer conditions, then all of a sudden this enormous sensitivity that is apparent from past climates 
isn't something that's just in the past. It becomes a vision of the future. And then all of a sudden, there's a very good reason to be very concerned about the future. Clouds seem simple at first. They form when warm, humid air rises and cools. The water vapor in the air condenses around dust grains, sea salt, or other particles, forming droplets of liquid water or ice known as cloud droplets. But the picture grows more complicated as heat, evaporation, turbulence, radiation, wind, geography, and so many other factors come into play. Physicists have struggled since the 1960s to understand how global warming will affect the many different kinds of clouds and how that will influence global warming in turn. For decades, clouds have been seen as the biggest source of uncertainty over how severe global warming will be. Of course, that's other than what society will do to reduce carbon emissions. Kate Marvel contemplates the cloud question at NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York City. She says there's a range of predictions made by different global climate models. The 30 or so models are run by climate research centers around the world. They program in all known factors to predict how much Earth's temperature will increase as the CO2 level ticks up. Each climate model solves a set of equations on a spherical grid representing Earth's atmosphere. Researchers use a supercomputer to evolve the grid of solutions forward in time, indicating how air and heat flow through each of the grid cells and circulate around the planet. By adding carbon dioxide and other heat-trapping greenhouse gases to the simulated atmosphere and seeing what happens, scientists can predict Earth's climate response. All of the climate models include Earth's ocean and wind currents, and they incorporate most of the important climate feedback loops, like the melting of the polar ice caps and the rise in humidity, which both exacerbate global warming. The models agree about most factors, but differ greatly in how they try to represent clouds. The least sensitive climate models predict the mildest reaction to increasing CO2. They find that Earth will warm 2 degrees Celsius if the atmospheric CO2 concentration doubles relative to pre-industrial times. That's currently on track to happen by about 2050. But that prediction is the best-case scenario. Marvel says the upper end of the predictions projects 4 or 5 degrees of warming in response to the doubling of CO2. She says the difference between now and the last ice age was 4.5 degrees. The huge range in the model's predictions mostly comes down to whether they see clouds blocking more or less sunlight in the future. But there's a problem with computer simulations of the global climate. Today's supercomputers can't handle them. Chris Bretherton is an atmospheric scientist and mathematician at the University of Washington. Because we want to run such a model out for hundreds of years, it can't have a very, very fine grid because that would be too expensive to run on a computer. And so... Typically, we might use a spacing between grid columns in this climate model of 100 or so kilometers, which is much, much larger than the size of these upward air currents that form many of the clouds that are most important, like thunderstorms or cumulus clouds are way too small to be represented in such a model. So we have to come up with artificial ways of making the model represent the clouds properly. Researchers assign an overall level of cloudiness to each grid cell based on other properties like temperature and humidity. 
But since clouds involve the interplay of so many mechanisms, it's not obvious how to do that. Bretherton says that impacts the models. They don't give the same answer for changing climate. That actually is one of the main reasons that climate models don't agree about how clouds will change in a future climate. The warming of the earth and sky strengthens some mechanisms involved in cloud formation, while also fueling other forces that break up clouds. Global climate models that predict two degrees of warming in response to doubling CO2 generally also see little or no change in cloudiness. Models that project a rise of four or more degrees forecast fewer clouds in the coming decades. Climatologist Michael Mann is the director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University. He says even two degrees of warming will cause considerable loss of life and suffering. And at the four-degree end of the range, Mann says we would see not only the destruction of the world's coral reefs, massive loss of animal species, and catastrophic extreme weather events, but also meters of sea level rise that would challenge our capacity for adaptation. Mann says it would mean the end of human civilization in its current form. It's difficult to imagine what might happen if, in a century or more from now, stratocumulus clouds were to suddenly disappear altogether. That could initiate something like an 8-degree jump on top of the warming that will already have occurred. In the last decade, advances in supercomputing power and new observations of actual clouds have attracted dozens of researchers to the problem of global warming's X-factor. Researchers are now able to model cloud dynamics at high resolution, generating patches of simulated clouds that closely match real ones. This has allowed them to see what happens when they crank up the CO2. First, physicists came to grips with high clouds, the icy, wispy ones like cirrus clouds that are miles high. By 2010, work by Mark Zelinka of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and others convincingly showed that as Earth warms, high clouds will move higher in the sky. Their study showed that those clouds will also shift toward higher latitudes, where they won't block as much direct sunlight as they do nearer the equator. This is expected to slightly exacerbate warming. All global climate models have integrated this effect. But more important and more challenging than high clouds are the low, thick, turbulent ones, especially the stratocumulus variety. Bright white sheets of stratocumulus cover a quarter of the ocean, reflecting 30 to 70 percent of the sunlight that would otherwise be absorbed by the dark waves below. Simulating stratocumulus clouds requires immense computing power because they contain turbulent eddies. Atmospheric scientists and mathematician Chris Bretherton performed some of the first simulations of these clouds combined with idealized climate models in 2013 and 2014. He and his collaborators modeled a small patch of stratocumulus and found that as the sea surface below it warmed under the influence of CO2, the cloud became thinner. NASA satellite data also indicated that warmer years are less cloudy than colder years. These findings began to suggest that the least sensitive global climate models, the ones predicting little change in cloud cover and only two degrees of warming, probably aren't right. Bretherton doesn't only develop some of the best simulations of stratocumulus clouds. 
He and his team also fly through the actual clouds, dangling instruments from airplane wings to measure atmospheric conditions and bounce lasers off of cloud droplets. In the Socrates mission last winter, Bretherton hopped on a government research plane and flew through stratocumulus clouds over the southern ocean between Tasmania and Antarctica. The clouds we were studying are low-lying clouds in the atmosphere, mainly so-called stratocumulus cloud layers. One reason we were studying that was because, uh, in particular, some of that cloud is at temperatures below freezing instead of being at temperatures above freezing. And the transition of clouds from being water to ice turns out makes a big difference in how reflective they are in sunlight. Global climate models tend to underestimate the cloudiness of this particular region. This makes the models relatively insensitive to possible changes in cloudiness. Bretherton and his team set out to investigate why southern ocean clouds are so abundant. So what we are actually doing is making what amount to weather forecasts with the climate models where we actually try to predict the exact conditions that the aircraft was flying through at the time it flew and the clouds that accompanied that. Then we try and make a sort of a head-to-head comparison of the clouds that the model simulated along the simulated location of the aircraft track and the actual clouds that we observed. Their findings suggest that the clouds consist primarily of supercooled water droplets rather than ice particles, as climate modelers had long assumed. Liquid water droplets stick around longer than ice droplets, which are bigger and more likely to fall as rain. This seems to be why the region is cloudier than global climate models predict. Adjusting the models to reflect the findings will make them more sensitive to cloud loss in this region as the planet heats up. Here's Bretherton again. If you take the work on the physical understanding of the cloud processes that underlie cloud feedbacks, if you just look at that work, I think in general that work tends to favor more positive cloud feedbacks than the average of climate models today. So that would tend to favor that range that's three to five degrees in climate sensitivity, not the two to three degree range. Bretherton says there are several lines of evidence that support this. Tapio Schneider's new simulation with Colleen Call and Kyle Pressel improved on Bretherton's earlier work. The simulation connected what happens in a small patch of stratocumulus cloud to a simple model of the rest of Earth's climate. This allowed them to investigate for the first time how these clouds not only respond to, but also affect the global temperature in a potential feedback loop. Their simulation ran for 2 million core hours on supercomputers in Switzerland and California. It modeled a roughly 5 by 5 kilometer patch of stratocumulus cloud, much like the clouds off the California coast. As the CO2 level ratchets up in the simulated sky and the sea surface heats up, the dynamics of the cloud evolve. The researchers found that the tipping point occurs and stratocumulus clouds suddenly disappear because of two dominant factors that work against their formation. First, higher CO2 levels make Earth's surface and sky hotter. Schneider says that means more evaporation. You might think more evaporation means more clouds, but that's in this case not necessarily so. Instead, evaporation has the potential to release more latent heat, and that extra heat drives stronger turbulence inside the clouds. 
The turbulence mixes moist air near the top of the cloud, pushing it up and out through an important boundary layer that caps stratocumulus clouds, while drawing dry air in from above. This is known as entrainment, and it works to break up the cloud. Secondly, as the greenhouse effect makes the upper atmosphere warmer and more humid, the cooling of the tops of stratocumulus clouds from above becomes less efficient. Schneider says this cooling is essential to cause globs of cold, moist air to sink. What the cooling does is it propels air masses downward towards the surface. They pick up moisture, bring it into the clouds and supply the clouds with moisture. When cooling becomes less effective, stratocumulus clouds grow thin. Countervailing forces and effects eventually get overpowered. When the CO2 level reaches about 1,200 parts per million in the simulation, more entrainment and less cooling conspire to break up the stratocumulus cloud altogether. We could reach those CO2 levels in 100 to 150 years if we don't curb emissions. To see how the loss of clouds would affect the global temperature, Schneider and his colleagues inverted the approach of global climate models. They simulated their cloud patch at high resolution and parameterized the rest of the world outside that box. They found that when the stratocumulus clouds disappeared in the simulation, the enormous amount of extra heat absorbed into the ocean increased its temperature and rate of evaporation. Schneider says water vapor has a greenhouse effect, much like CO2. When you lose the clouds, you warm the surface globally, rapidly, and what that will lead to is an overall moisture atmosphere simply because a warm atmosphere can hold more water vapor. And more water vapor in the sky means more heat will be trapped at the planet's surface. Extrapolated to the entire globe, the loss of low clouds and rise in water vapor leads to runaway warming, the dreaded 8-degree jump. After the climate has made this transition and water vapor saturates the air, ratcheting down the CO2 won't immediately bring the clouds back. Schneider says there's hysteresis, where the state of the system depends on its history. He says we would need to reduce CO2 concentrations down to or even slightly below current levels before stratocumulus clouds would form again. Paleoclimatologists say this hysteresis might explain other puzzles about the paleoclimate record. During the Pliocene, three million years ago, the atmospheric CO2 level was 400 parts per million, similar to today, but Earth was four degrees hotter. This might be because we were cooling down from a much warmer, perhaps largely cloudless period, and stratocumulus clouds hadn't yet come back. But Schneider says there's one important caveat to the study, which will need to be addressed by future work. The simplified climate model he and his colleagues created assumed that global wind currents would stay as they are now. Whether the clouds are thinning or thickening or if they're becoming shallower or deeper, that's where a lot of the uncertainties come in. There's some evidence that these wind currents might weaken in a way that would make stratocumulus clouds more robust, raising the threshold for their disappearance from 1,200 parts per million to some higher level. Other changes could do the opposite, or the tipping point could vary by region. Schneider says we can't capture a complete picture by looking at just a small patch because of the heterogeneity of the global system. He says researchers will need to use many simulations of cloud patches to calibrate a global climate model. What I would love to do is that we embed 
many, many simulations in the global climate model, maybe hundreds, and then run the climate change simulation that interacts with these large area simulations. I think then we can capture the heterogeneity, we can capture the interaction with the large scale dynamics, and I think we'll get a much better picture, much better quantitative picture of when this can occur. Such a setup would enable a more precise prediction of the stratocumulus tipping point or points. There's a long way to go before we reach 1,200 parts per million or thereabouts. Ultimate disaster can be averted if net carbon emissions can be reduced to zero, which doesn't mean humans can't release any carbon into the sky. We currently pump out 10 billion tons of it each year, and scientists estimate that Earth can absorb about 2 billion tons of it a year, in addition to what's naturally emitted and absorbed. Imagine if fossil fuel emissions can be reduced to 2 billion tons annually through the expansion of solar, wind, nuclear, and geothermal energy, changes in the agricultural sector, and the use of carbon capture technology. Human-caused global warming will slow to a halt. Schneider is still hopeful about the future. In the future is sort of a scary aspect, but I'm pretty optimistic we'll never get there. I hope we'll figure out how to use solar power efficiently, effectively, very fast. Schneider says we're not that far away from the cost of producing electricity from solar power crossing the fossil fuel cost curve. And he says once it crosses that threshold, entire industries will be transformed. MIT climate scientist Carrie Emanuel says possible economic collapse caused by nearer-term effects of climate change might also curtail carbon emissions before we reach the stratocumulus tipping point. But other unforeseen changes and climate tipping points could accelerate us toward the cliff. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Ballett. For more on this story, read Natalie Wolchover's full article, A World Without Clouds, on our website, quantummagazine.org. And if you're looking for some reading material heading into the new year, the MIT Press has published two quanta books, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire and The Prime Number Conspiracy. Order them now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. <laughs>